The book of Revelation is one of those biblical books that we sometimes just don't know what to do with. Even if we get the book's main message, that Jesus is coming back to establish his kingdom, so much of the book often remains an enigma to us. What will the millennium be like? Who are the two witnesses? More broadly, why is the book of Revelation written the way it was, with such vivid imagery and symbolism? And of course, what should we really believe about the mark of the beast? In our interview today, I'm talking with Tom Schreiner, the James Buchanan Harrison Professor of New Testament Interpretation and Associate Dean of the School of Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Tom is the author of a new volume in Crossway's New Testament Theology series called The Joy of Hearing, A Theology of the Book of Revelation. And today he's going to answer your questions about the mysterious last book in your Bible. Let's get started. Well, Tom, thank you for joining me again on the Crossway Podcast. Matt, it's uh, good to be with you again. Always a delight. Yeah. So uh, we're going to be talking about the book of Revelation again today. And, and as we all know, uh, this book is one that many of us, all of us, we at least think we know something about it. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a pretty controversial book at times, a really interesting, difficult book to understand at times. Uh, and so naturally, we thought it might be worth asking our listeners to submit questions for you uh, to, to answer about this book. So mm-hmm. in total, we received over 200 questions related to a whole host of topics in this book. And so we've boiled it down to some of our favorites, and we're excited to talk with you today. I'm looking forward to it. I'm glad I don't have to answer all 200. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll try not to answer. Uh, we'll try not mm-hmm. to, to pitch all of them at you that way. Um, a lot of the questions that we got sort of circled around a number of key topics, uh, repeated topics that came up. And one of the topics that had the most questions, as you might guess, was the mark of the beast. Uh, Mm. That's one of these issues that has a certain cultural presence beyond even the Christian church and tradition. And um, we actually, you and I, we had an interview, a whole interview focused on this question that we released a couple years ago. And so listeners can check that out if they're interested in that. But I thought it would be worth returning to briefly here today. And so uh, here's an example question. A listener from Lawrenceburg, Kentucky wrote in, I have a brother who thinks that I received the mark of the beast when I got the COVID-19 vaccine. How should I think about that and respond to him? So I wonder if we could start off with that question, Tom, how would you respond? Yes, I I don't think receiving the vaccine is the mark of the beast. uh, I compromised myself with this answer, but I received the vaccine as well. And I don't think in getting the vaccine, I was receiving the mark of the beast. You know, it's just so interesting. Even today, I'm, re- I, I'm reading about um, Tudor England and their understanding of the Antichrist uh, mm. in a book by Richard Bauckham. And uh, you're not surprised in those days, they linked it especially with the papacy and with Islam. And um, I'm not here to adjudicate that question, but I think we have to be careful uh, to too quickly assign the mark of the beast to some contemporary uh, controversy or Mm. whatever is going on in society. I remember uh, I I taught Revelation uh, years ago to to the youth in our church. I was. uh, I was uh, one of the teachers for our uh, high school group, and they were worried. This is this was the 1970s. 
they were they were literally worried that they'd receive the mark of the beast, uh, or or they could through a credit cards. What's behind that impulse? That that seems to be we can come up with a lot of examples from history where there is this desire to associate this this mysterious mark with very uh, current issues that are happening. Yeah, I, I think in one sense that sentiment is good. It, the, the, the Church of Jesus Christ uh, has always said scripture, the scriptural prophecies will be fulfilled. I think the prophecies are given in such a way that every generation uh, rightly thinks this may be the end. So it's somewhat natural that we look for signs or indications that it is the end. Uh, so I, as I said, I was reading some about uh, what was happening in English circles, and it's very interesting. William Perkins, some of your listeners may know that name, a very famous uh, Puritan. There were many people predicting the end, and, and Perkins kept saying, be careful. Be, he was very wise, right? A, a great pastor and scholar. And he said, be careful. Yes, this may be the end, but don't don't go too far, and I think that's the other side of it. So we're rightly saying this may be the end, but then we can jump too quickly to a particular event or person or a phenomenon in society and identify that with uh, the fulfillment of the prophecy. And we always have to remind ourselves, everyone so far in history who has made such specific predictions every single person has been wrong mm. <laughs> so that, that, should, that should humble us a little bit and yes and caution us about drawing conclusions too too quickly but i think one i mean one helpful way of thinking about uh, the mark of the beast is i take it you don't get it accidentally mm. right i mean when you're receiving the vaccine is that is it so clear I would say no, I'm putting it as a question, but is it so clear that you're worshiping the beast and the antichrist and you're, you're repudiating God and his Christ and his salvation? I don't, it, it, I, certainly people wouldn't say that as far as I know about other vaccines. Mm. So, so, so you think that's part of, that's inherent to this idea of the mark, that there is this explicit intentional repudiation of God that people are, are doing when they receive the mark. Absolutely. And, but then someone might say, well, is it possible that some people who receive the mark don't know that they're receiving it? And I would say, yes. Actually, I don't think that mark is literal at all, as per our previous conversation. But I would say, yes, some people probably aren't conscious of it, but that's because they're so far from the Lord. They're not following him. They don't care about him. They're, they've given themselves entirely to the things of this world and mm. fulfilling their own selfish desires. So I don't, what I'd say is I don't think it could, that a Christian who's uh, in church following the Lord as far as they know, I mean, none of us is perfect, and uh, doing as well that you know, you signed up for the wrong credit card, or you got the vaccine, or uh, I, I, it doesn't work that way. Yeah, yeah. You, 
at the end of the day, you know what you're doing. You know, you know, you know at some level, of course, you can suppress the truth. The Bible says that, right? Your conscience can become hardened. But you know you the decisions you've made in your life. And so a, a well-meaning Christian trying to follow the Lord. Now, they don't. The, the mark of the beast isn't getting the vaccine or, yeah. or getting the wrong credit card or, huh. or using... Apple Pay or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> There's all kinds of theories that have been yeah thrown yeah. out for what that is. Another issue that often is associated with this mark of the beast uh, is this number, 666. And uh, I wonder if you could explain, uh, a listener from Malaysia asks, how is the number 666 associated with the beast and why is that number significant? Yeah, well, I mean, of course, the number, the number is really at one level only significant because John talks about it in chapter 13 verse 18 and he tells us here's the mind who has wisdom and then we're to calculate the number of the beast and he says it's a number of a person or a number of a man and uh, it is uh, 666 um, of course there's been intense controversy over what that means and uh, you know most scholars today, if you look at the scholarly commentaries, they, they associate it with Nero. Uh, if, you, if you put Nero Caesar in Hebrew, out comes 666. So that is probably the majority view, that, that, that Nero as the head of the Roman government represented the beast, the empire, the Roman empire, which was opposed to Christians. And, and in a way, it makes a lot of sense because Nero, we know Nero persecuted Christians and put Christians to death. So the advantage of that reading is it's rooted in the historical situation in which Revelation was written. Revelation was written to the first readers. It would speak to them. So that's a very plausible reading. It may well be right. I myself follow Greg Beale. Some of your listeners know that name who uh, has written a, two, a massive commentary on Revelation and then a shorter one that's not that short. <laughs> <laughs> it's maybe short for a commentator. Yeah, it's short, it's short for Greg Beale. So. <laughs> but um, he, you know, you could argue that numbers are used symbolically in Revelation, the seven spirits of God. I think that refers to the Holy Spirit. So I would argue that 666 following Beale refers to that which is imperfect, that which is evil. 777 stands for perfection, 666 for that which is everything that is opposed to God. So it, John is saying, I think in using 666, the, the, this, is a, this is an empire uh, that is man-centered, mm. not God-centered. It's... Uh, it's focused on the worship of human beings. It's the worship of the creature rather than the creator. So that that's what the fundamental sin is. I mean, what is the mark of the beast? It's finally the worship of uh, self and the creator uh, instead of, uh, of the creature, I mean, instead of the creator. Hmm. Th that's the root sin. That's the sin Adam and Eve committed in the garden. They, they trusted in themselves rather than trusting in God. So I'd, I'd, like, I'd like to emphasize that because it's not, it's not so strange. 
you know? Mm, yeah. It fits with the rest of the Bible. <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, and this relates, you mentioned a minute ago that um, Nero is often seed, uh, seen sometimes as the, the reference for this number, and the beast is, is often interpreted as uh, the empire of Rome. And that kind of gets to the question of uh, what some of this symbolism, some of these images, some of these prophecies are actually referring to and when they may have been fulfilled. Uh, one listener in, uh, from Avon Park, Florida asks, were the images and the symbols and the predictions of Revelation fulfilled around the first century? Uh, if not, do they have a future fulfillment or can it actually be both? How would you answer that? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I would, I would say it can be both. And it is both, I would say. Yes, there are dimensions of the prophecy. I, I think, let's take an example. In, he, he speaks of Babylon as the, as the harlot or the prostitute. And uh, I think chapter 17, verse 18, makes it pretty clear that he's thinking of the city of Rome. So who, who is the harlot? Who's the prostitute? It's, it's Rome with all its glitter and excitement, but it's, but Rome is putting to death uh, the saints. And uh, John mentions this several times. She has a cup and she's drinking the blood of the saints, not literally, I don't, but she's, uh, Rome is uh, killing Christians. Mm. So that's a first century fulfillment. But I, but I think there's a sense, you know, John does say Babylon and not Rome. And, and I, so I think there's a sense in which it, Yes, this is also all true. It's true all through history. Augustine, writing right in the uh, late 300s, early 400s, he wasn't wrong to say, you know, you have an opposition here between the city of man and the city of God. Hmm. And that's still true today. The city of man uh, is, so to speak, is opposed to the city of God. So th there are still prostitutes and harlots today in the cities of this world, right? We, we, we have to appropriate these images, though, wisely, because obviously there are Christians in Rome, right? Uh, so when he says the, the city is a harlot, he doesn't mean everybody in the city is wicked. Mm. So we can say, you know, is, uh, you know, any contemporary city you, you choose there's a sense in which it, there's the city of city of man there, but there's also a sense in which there's the city of God there, because in in every city there's also Christians. Mm, yeah. So it takes there's some nuance uh, to how we interpret some of these things. We need to be reading in the broader context of Scripture and understanding of how how language is often used, especially since Revelation is symbolic and rather impressionistic. So you don't want to press those images too far. Hmm. Uh, because John's, John's not writing a philosophical treatise. It's an apocalyptic genre, and so he gives us pictures. He saw vision, after all. So a lot of people also had questions about the millennium. Uh, and a listener in Georgia asks, does Revelation 20 refer to a literal thousand-year earthly, earthly reign of Christ, or is it allegorical for the church age? Well, that is an excellent question, and Christians have disagreed on this all through history. So, do you want me to give you a brief typology of the different views out there? Yeah, maybe give us the, the, the short, concise version of that. Yeah, yeah. So, you have uh, a premillennial view 
A premillennial view is that Jesus Christ will return. This is why it's called premillennial before the millennium, and he will reign on earth. Um, there are different views. Will he reign literally in Jerusalem? But he'll reign on earth. We can just keep it simple. Most premillennialists believe he will reign literally for a thousand years. Actually, that's not necessary for the premillennial view. You could just say the thousand years are symbolic for a long period of time. What's necessary for the premillennial view is that Jesus will reign on this earth when he returns. But most premillennialists think those thousand years are a literal period of time. Then we have a view called postmillennialism, and that means after the millennium, and that means that Jesus will come at the end of the millennium. So for postmillennialism, the millennium could start right at the time of the resurrection. Some postmillennialists say that. Some say maybe it started at a particular point in history. But for postmillennialists, by the evangelical postmillennialists, by the power of the gospel, the world is gradually transformed. Hmm. So, so by the end of history, um, things are getting better and better by the power of the gospel. So most of the Puritans were postmillennialists. Jonathan Edwards was a postmillennialist. Hmm. So it was a very, it was very popular in you know the 17 and 1800s, especially in the United States, for instance. And then there's all millennialism. Uh, that is not a very good name because literally all millennialism <laughs> means no millennium. It also sounds like you're just kind of trying to figure out how to pronounce the word. Yeah, right, right, right. But uh, now you could call it realized millennialism, and uh, all millennialists believe that the millennium started at the uh, resurrection and exaltation of Christ. Obviously, the, I sh didn't say this with post-millennialists, but for most post-millennialists, the thousand years is symbolic of a long period of time. That's definitely true of all millennialists. The thousand year period isn't a literal amount of time, but Christ, uh, Christ reigns uh, in heaven. And uh, most maybe the most popular view today is that the the first resurrection in revelation 20 is the intermediate state hmm. when when saints die they immediately go to be with christ and reign with him in heaven there's a new view out there by the way called new creation this is the fourth view new creation millennialism and this view argue, argues that the millennium is the first stage of the new creation it's sort of a via media between a pre and all millennialism mm, i'm kind of i'm kind of attracted to that right now but no one should trust me on the millennium i'm constantly <laughs> changing i'm constantly changing my mind well that's that's an interesting comment because you're a bible scholar who's who's done a lot of work written commentaries on the book of revelation uh explain that fact that you're constantly changing your mind on this issue does that speak to just inherent ambiguity in the biblical text about this or something else? Yeah, I think it's I think it's a difficult question. I mean, some people wouldn't say that. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people. They say it's easy. It's simple. Yeah. But I don't think so. I, th it's, I think it's difficult to tell. You know, it's the only passage in the Bible that specifically speaks of a thousand-year reign. And uh, I... I think it's instructive. You go back to the earliest history of the church. There were premillennialists, and there were all millennialists. 
Hmm. And you and and I think it's so interesting. Eusebius, writing what in the fourth century, says about Papias. Papias is a premillennialist. Eusebius is an amillennialist. And Eusebius says, basically, Papias is stupid. <laughs> he doesn't have very much intelligence that he interpreted in premillennial terms, which. I just want to say, look, this debate's been going on a long time. Good Christians who love the Lord have disagreed on it. And, and the other thing I always like to say about the millennium is sometimes Christians, evangelical Christians, they get more interested in the millennium than the new creation, than eternity. But whatever your view of the millennium, it will end. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it, will, it will not be forever. It can't be the most important thing. So you might say, well, why wouldn't God reveal it so clearly? Well, it's a temporary period. It's not anything that's temporary can't be the most important thing. Mm, yeah, so, maybe that's, that's a clue that we're not supposed to be too concerned about it. Or too dogmatic about it. Yeah. Yeah. So another issue that we got some questions about are the, the two witnesses mentioned in Revelation 11. Uh, and a listener from Essex, England asks, Will the two witnesses be actual physical beings of some sort, humans, or are they merely symbolic of God's protection of his church? Yeah. Well, just what I, I mean, a great question again, something that's been debated all through history again. When you look at those two witnesses, you know, what one interesting suggestion, many have taken them to be two individuals. So, hey, you could think of Enoch and Elijah. Hmm. You know, a lot of people have been attracted to that because... Because they never died? Because they never died. And then, then they do die. Mm. <laughs> In Revelation of, 11, if you hold that view. Another view that's uh, attractive is that it's Elijah and Moses because of the things they do, right? They stop up the heaven and uh, turn water to blood and things like that. So, um, and many... You know, there have been some really bizarre uh, choices in this, some that even would make you laugh. People you've never even heard of have been identified <laughs> as the two witnesses. But um, so that's certainly possible. I believe pretty strongly, could be wrong, but I believe the two witnesses represent the church. Um, you know, this is when you come to Revelation 11, it's sort of a parting of the ways in terms of how you interpret the book. Hmm. Because some people say, well, you ought to interpret the book as literally as possible. But my response to that is, how do you know that? <laughs> if you say that in advance, you're deciding in advance how it should be interpreted. But what if the author wanted you to interpret it symbolically? How can you say in advance, well, no, that can't be. So I think I would argue that's cheating hermeneutically. Hmm. You can't, you can't, I mean, you can say that, but I don't think you can say that convincingly. Oh, it ought to be interpreted as literally as possible. It's apocalyptic literature. So again, it's just a part of the ways, you know, he says that fire comes out of the mouth of the two witnesses. I mean, is that literal? Is he literally saying fire flows out of the mouth? of the two witnesses. But I would say you see in the Old Testament, even Jeremiah says, my words are like fire. The words of judgment. I think John is clearly saying, look, 
they, they speak a word of judgment. The fire comes out of their mouth. They strike the earth with plagues. Those plagues stand for judgment. Why are there two witnesses? Because in the Old Testament, we read that the uh, credibility of an account is verified by two witnesses. Hmm. And, you know, John pulls on all kinds of things here. On, in Zechariah 4, on, on the, the two witnesses there, Joshua and Zerubbabel. So I think he's talking about the church, the church that proclaims. So this is one of the things that excites me, Matt, about this chapter. You know, the one, one way of reading it is, yeah, this is going to take place at the end of history. Isn't that fascinating? Um, God will fulfill his purposes. But if I'm right, the two witnesses represent us, the mm. church of Jesus Christ today. Yeah. And it, it represents our story. And what is, what is John saying? The church of Jesus Christ that proclaims God's word of salvation and judgment. And the church will be persecuted. And the church will finally be vindicated by God. He will raise us from the dead. Hmm. And uh, therefore, those who hear the message of the witnesses need to repent. So it's a very mainstream Christian message clothed in apocalyptic garb. Yeah. Well, and this all connects to this broader question of literal versus figurative language and how do we interpret those things. Uh, and many listeners, like one in San Antonio, Texas, uh, asked us, how do you know when to interpret a passage literally or figuratively? Yeah, and what are the guidelines for that as we approach a book like Revelation? Well, yeah, I mean, I would say the, the first broad category is to think in terms of genre. I mean, what are we reading? Are you reading a narrative? Are you reading a story? Um, is it a historical account? Right? You, we all recognize if you're reading a fairy tale, once upon a time, okay, we immediately shift in that genre. You know, are we reading poetry? Are you reading an epistle? Obviously, if you're reading a historical account, you're gonna you're gonna take that language uh, or those descriptions literally. But in Revelation, almost all agree you have apocalyptic genre. Apocalyptic genre is is very symbolic. Even the word John uses in chapter one, verse two, is a word semino, indicating that he's using he's speaking symbolically. Hmm. So, um, how do we know when to take it symbolically? What's, let's take a really simple example. Well, maybe it's not so simple, but maybe nothing simple. But <laughs> the the beast in chapter thirteen. Okay, I don't know of anybody who thinks the beast is literally a beast right every hmm. so you know if somebody says i take everything literally well is it an animal yeah no no nobody thinks that we all know wait a minute that's a symbol right what's it a symbol of so um, uh, unless you're gonna say okay that's that's literal i think it's clear that that is a symbol. Yes, some passages are harder than others. Is yeah, it? it's not always that clear. It's not always that clear. But we, we see when we read the Revelation, okay, look, this, this language is some, uh, clearly symbolic. It's the seven spirits of God. Well, if you take it to be the Holy Spirit, as I do, there's not seven Holy Spirits. Mm -hmm. 
So we have a clue that the number seven is symbolic of what? Fullness, completion. Or, or take, the, take the vision of Christ in chapter one. So we're told he has white hair. His eyes blaze like coals. He has a double-edged sword in his mouth. I mean, literally? Is that what, how Jesus is literally walking around? He literally has white hair. He literally has a two-edged sword in his mouth. Hmm. He's, 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 he's literally got feet of bronze. I mean, what does that mean if he's a human being? Yeah. Uh, so I think, I think the normal reader would say, oh, no, of course, these are symbols. Now, what are they symbols of? Uh, that's always the question. Um, are there, clearly, are there some passages that are literal? Yeah, I mean, John says, I'm, I'm on the Isle of Patmos mm. because of persecution. I don't think it's hard for us to see, okay, look, that's a straightforward description of a literal event. Yeah. Another issue that we got a number of questions about relates to the nation of Israel. Uh, how would you summarize what the book of Revelation teaches us about Israel? Yes, that is, again, very disputed. Comments, some commentators and friends that I love, they see a lot about Israel in the book. I basically don't see anything. Mm. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of it turns on how you understand the 144,000 in chapter 7. And he lists 12 tribes with uh, 12,000 from each tribe. So the, and he lists these various tribes. But many commentators, and I'm among them, take that to be symbolic of the church. So I could give you reasons for that. I don't know if you want to discuss that, but at least what I'd say is then when I look at the rest of the book, I don't think the woman in chapter 12 is Israel. I think that represents the church. So I don't think John concentrates at all on Israel I don't think, I think for John, so I think this is interesting. In chapter 2, verse 9, in chapter 3, verse 9, he says to the church at Smyrna and to the church of Philadelphia that the synagogue in their town is the synagogue of Satan. Now, John's not anti-Semitic. He's Jewish himself, mm. after all. But why is he saying that? I think he's saying that because most scholars agree, I think this is right, that the Jews are probably telling the Roman authorities that the Christians are seditious and are not to be trusted. Hmm. So the, 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 the Jewish leaders and the, Jew, Jew, the people in the Jewish synagogue who aren't Christians are informing against the Christians. Hmm. And I think that bothered the Christians. Like, who, who's right here? Yeah. Are, are we right or are they right? And I think, so John's not intending to be harsh, but I think John's saying, look, they, they are the community of, of Satan. Now, so what's interesting here is John picks up Psalm 86 and says they will come, uh, these Jews who oppose you will come and bow down before you. But in the Old Testament, in that passage that's cited, in the Old Testament, it's the Gentiles who will come and bow down before the Jews. And John flips it. So he's inverting that. He's inverting it. And 
I think what he's saying is, look, Church of Jesus Christ, you're the true, you're the true Israel. You're not a replacement of Israel because the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus, hmm. but they're the true people of God. Yeah, to pick so, up on Paul's language of you are the, the true heirs of Abraham. Exactly. You're, you're the true circumcision. You're the sons and daughters of Abraham. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. So that actually kind of connects into a really interesting question that we received from a, a listener from Vermont. Uh, this person writes, I've heard it said that the letters to the seven churches, uh, which you just referenced, are actually a prophecy showing the evolution of the church, with the last letter to Laodicea highlighting the church's eventual apostasy. And this person adds, given the state of the world and the church today, this seems plausible to me. Is this a valid perspective? Um, that, so that is called the historicist view of Revelation. And that it has been very popular, especially in the Middle Ages, through maybe the 1800s. It's you'll still find it here and there today. But yeah, that you have that the seven letters are a prophecy. You know, the church started off well, the letter to the Ephesus, and then they lost their first love. And, then, and there's then, kind of there's a there does seem to be a bit of a maybe progression in the the way that these churches are portrayed in those seven letters, making this maybe seem a little bit plausible because of that. Yeah, yeah. Some people would say that. But I would say, <laughs> uh, and I agree with this, basically no one who studies the letters today believes that. Hmm. Because at the end of the day, it's arbitrary. It's, uh, you know, the, the, let me put it another way. That, that reading actually robs the book of what it's intending to do. It was written to people who actually lived in Ephesus and Smyrna mm. and uh, Pergamum and Thyatira, etc., etc. And it this, turned, is, this would be an example where we're not taking it literally enough, would you say? Yeah, it's almost like an allegorical reading. You know, uh, Laodicea doesn't really stand for Laodicea anymore. It stands for the end of church history. But it also becomes very arbitrary. I mean, the Church of Philadelphia, right? They're the fifth church. I mean, they're, uh, they're a very good church. You know, Sardis and Laodicea, the sixth and seventh letter, they're bad. So when was that good period? Is that the Reformation? But, when, <laughs> and, but then when did it turn bad? You know, when did it become the dead church? That's mm, Sardis. Yeah. And, uh, and the lukewarm church. It, it, so, you know, it can seem plausible because we can look around and say, well, I think our churches are lukewarm. I would say, yes, there's some truth in that. But there's also some truth in that there are good churches too. There yeah. are Philadelphia churches around. There's churches like Smyrna, another good church. Hmm. So it, it's interesting. Every letter says this is the letter. This is the message of the Spirit to all the churches in John's day and for us today. All the churches need to hear all the letters. There, there are Laodicean churches now. There's Philadelphian churches now. There's Ephesian churches now. But they're not, they're not chronological. Yeah, yeah. No. Uh, all of this, the, the, the different opinions that we often have, the, the tricky interpretive questions that we have to face with the book of Revelation, uh, might lead someone to ask, yeah, is it actually possible for us to, to understand what this book is really teaching? Um, 
And is it actually that important to know the details of some of these things? Or uh, could a Christian flourish with just a very limited understanding of the end? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I would say first God put it in the Bible. So it's important for us. He thought it was important. I think it's very significant that this is the last book in the New Testament. It's the culmination. You know, the message is vital. Um, that doesn't mean we have to understand every detail. But the big picture in Revelation is important. There's a great, there's a cosmic conflict between the dragon, Satan, and Jesus. We need to know. I mean, it is taught other places in the Bible. The Revelation makes it very clear. We, we will triumph. We mm -hmm. will win. You know, it's also, it's not just information in our heads. It's also very important practically because Revelation says, do not compromise with the world. Endure to the end. You, you will be rewarded, but you won't be rewarded if you side with the beast and the false prophet, if you turn against God. Um, and Revelation teaches us very clearly, Jesus will come again. Mm -hmm. So I'll just share my own experience. I became a Christian at 17. I wasn't a person who read the Bible before that. The first time I read Revelation, I thought, wow, it's amazing. There's a lot of things I didn't understand in that. But I understood we win. <laughs> that was really, it made an impact on me, even at the level of my imagination. We win. We win this battle. And um, Jesus triumphs. And uh, we need to put our trust in him. And also, Revelation is very strong. I, gotta, I, I don't want to say too much more here, but it's very strong on the cross of Christ. How do we get in? Our robes are washed by the blood of the Lamb. Some of the most beautiful pictures mm. of what it means to be redeemed yeah. are in the book of Revelation. Come drink of the water of life freely, he says. We, we so often think of Revelation as this picture of judgment and wrath, but you're right, there is such beautiful redemptive imagery there as well. Yeah, come drink of the water of life. And a, and a beautiful picture of the new creation. We don't have anything else like that in that kind of detail in chapters 21 and 22. Hmm. So. Well, Tom, thank you so much for answering these questions that uh, our listeners submitted. Uh, we really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, it was my delight, Matt. That was Tom Schreiner answering your questions about the book of Revelation. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, The Joy of Hearing, A Theology of the Book of Revelation. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode and liked the show, would you consider telling a friend and leaving us a review? That really helps us get the message out. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.